0: when meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Get a free 30-day trial by visiting GoToMeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. And by Friday Night Tykes. Gear up for a new season of the most controversial show on television. For these 10-year-old boys, playing a man's sport comes with a very high price. Friday Night Tykes. New season premieres January 20th at 9 on Esquire Network. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Tuesday, January 20th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Sometimes you celebrate the end of a cliche, sometimes you bemoan the end of a cliche. Some cliches go, and it's okay that they're gone because they don't really apply to our world. And if you know one of those, I'll bet you dollars to donuts that you'll drop the dime on me. Sometimes they go, and it's good, not for the sake of language, but for the sake of society. They represent or no longer represent something that was going on, like the cliche about going postal. You don't hear that as much, that someone's going postal, because post office employees, though frustrated and overworked and beleaguered, are not nearly as homicidal, statistics would indicate the interventions worked. But there's one cliche from State of the Union speeches that has gone missing, and I miss, it. Here's Bill Clinton in 1998. Ladies and gentlemen, the state of our union is strong. And he said that every year. Sometimes he amplified it. In 2000, he said, My fellow Americans,
0: the state of our union is the strongest it has ever
1: been. So in 2001, in his first inaugural, George W. Bush didn't say it. Then he began asserting it in tweaked formulations. Remember, his first inaugural was before the attacks of September 11th, and afterwards he couldn't really say it. He would indicate that we're getting stronger. In 2006, that was the last time that a U.S. president simply asserted,
0: Tonight, the state of our union is
1: strong, and together we will make it stronger. Unlike Clinton, Bush didn't buttress it with stats about the economy and crime rates and foreign affairs. And after 2006, the phrase just simply dropped away. Barack Obama has failed to resurrect it in the exact formulation, quote, the state of the union is strong. Two years ago, he said the state of the union was stronger. Last year, he said this. It is you, our citizens, who make the state of our union strong. But he hasn't. Come out and flatly said it, but maybe he will tonight. Maybe tonight is the night that the cliché roars back strongly. Today on the show, Maria Konnikova. And in the spiel, news announcers who repulse even when their product is good and PR pitches that entice even when the product is repulsive. But first, pay special attention if you're a spatial learner. Today's show is sponsored by Friday Night Tykes, It has been called the most controversial show on television. It is a bunch of ten-year-old boys playing a man sport that comes with a high price. Friday Night Tykes. The premiere is tonight, January 20th, at 9 p.m. on the Esquire Network. And this season, even though I mentioned 10-year-old boys, one of the more compelling characters in a new one is a girl who is by far the biggest player on her team. So to follow her and to follow a lot of the storylines that were presented in season one of Friday Night Tykes, a show that got members of Congress talking about it, again, check out the Esquire Network at nine o'clock tonight. That's Friday Night Tykes. Some is that questions are easy to know. Hey, is that hot? I don't know, let me check Ow! Others are more open to interpretation. Is that safe? Well, is that your own hair? But there is one important is that question that is both vital and also so, so hard to answer. The question, is that bullshit? We asked this question in Matters of Science with Maria Konnikova. Maria writes about science for The New Yorker. She also wrote the book Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. Don't know if that helps solidify her credentials. She's a doctor, right? You're a do- aren't you a doctor?
0: I am a doctor. Oh, my
1: God. Dr. Konnikova, thank you for joining us. It's such a pleasure, Mike. Now, to earn your doctorate, so much schooling was had. What was your learning style? And by the way, that's our topic today, different learning styles. What was your learning style?
0: My learning style was very simple. Give me the information, leave me alone, and please, please, dear God, don't make me work in a group. Oh, okay. And don't make me draw anything. Yeah, I was bad no, no, too. Vis- no posters, no visual projects. If we have a poster project, I still have PTSD from having to make cereal boxes in fourth <laughs> grade to learn about, of all things, geography. My country was Israel, so I even remember my cereal. It was negative nectarine crunch. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> that
0: is how traumatic that was.
1: Yeah, and the special toy surprise in the box. <laughs> was a Qassam rocket from the Palestinians. No, it's just been shot down by the Iron Dome. Okay, now that we've offended everyone. Learning styles. I guess my learning style was, don't be boring, and if the, if the information is interesting, I'll absorb it. But when people talk about learning styles, they actually get pretty specific. I'm a visual learner. I'm an auditory learner. What else do people put forward as different kind of learning styles?
0: Well, we can do this for a long time, because yeah. as of the last review that was done last year, there are 71 documented learning styles that people say they they uh, do or don't have. The most common one is visual learner versus auditory or kind of usual, let's put stuff up on the chalkboard and lecture type of learner, then there are people who work well in groups and who learn by doing. There are people who work better by observing. There are people who work better with a partner. There are people who work better by themselves. There are people who work better one-on-one with the teacher. It just goes on and on and on. And even visual learner, you know, you can start breaking it down where I only learn if you tell me, you know, if you give me a Dick and Jane and show me a little video and explain what's happening versus something that's much more simple. So we could, you know, you can break down learning styles almost ad infinitum.
1: Yeah. And here I am on a website. It's like learningstylesonline.com. And to visualize this, here's the diagram. They have five different learning styles. So it's inside a pentagon and it's a visual... Logical, verbal, physical, and oral. But then within that pentagon, there's a circle. And within that circle, it's cut in half. So two semicircles, social and solitary. And then within the social and solitary circle, there's another smaller pentagon that says, uh, it's so small I can't even read it. It looks like it says memetic styles. Who the hell knows what that is? Okay. Do you know what the, the hell that is? <laughs> I think it says... I think it's, it says, the,
0: it's the memory styles.
1: Oh, okay. Memietic styles, <laughs> I think. So it does seem... Yeah, there's definitely got to be some truth to that. Like, some people... I often hear people are terrible at classrooms because they're not a... Because they need to put their hands on something to learn it. That seems legit, right?
0: Well, yes and no. Uh-huh. In the sense that it seems legit and... Yeah. People in education have certainly taken it to heart. But when you actually review the evidence, it turns out that there's on the measure that matters, which is if I say I'm a certain type of learner. Yeah. And then you present to me the same information in two different ways. Oh, yeah. One in the way that I want and one in another way. And then I give you a test. I have to do better. On the one that I said I was that type of learner. That doesn't happen.
1: That doesn't happen with any of the styles? Like, it does seem the more compelling, I don't know, you could argue visual or spatial, but the hands-on thing. I mean, some people... So,
0: there is some evidence that different learning styles matter, but that's not actually a function normally of the person. It's a function of the material. Mm -hmm. So, certain material is presented better in certain ways. If we're studying physics, we want to do a physical demonstration because that you know, if you just put formulas on the board, it doesn't really mean anything. So there you really, you don't just want a visual style, you want a participatory style, you want people to mess around with it, or chemistry, you know, anything that, that has components like that, of course, you want that to happen. And do we want people to draw pictures of every single math problem, not necessarily. That is not necessarily the best way to solve it.
1: It also seems to me that the quality of the teacher matters. So if uh, I have a great shop teacher, that's got to be hands-on. And if I have a terrible English teacher, maybe I'll convince myself I'm a good hands-on spatial learner, but it's not the case. You know? Absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think the number one variable, and this is there's lots of data on this, is the teacher. And that variable, unfortunately, is one that you can't easily translate. And I think a
1: uh, knock against the U.S. education is that it's been pretty verbal, right? It's pretty based on its speech-dependent writing, reading, taking in information that way. I don't know if the the identification of learning styles is so much, oh, yes, this is a thing that is true, or it's just a complex-seeming way to critique uh, the old ways of doing things.
0: I think it's a complex way of critiquing the old ways of doing things because we often misunderstand them. We think of it as, you know, this rote teacher standing in front of the Blackboard and just lecturing, lecturing, lecturing. That hasn't been true for, for quite some time. But I think the reason you get these critiques in the U.S. and not, say, you know, France, is because we're much more focused on the individual here, and especially the individual child. Everyone is special. Everyone needs to be catered to. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, has very negative repercussions long after the classroom because... You're never going to be in a position after elementary school, maybe for some people after high school or college, where people cater to you personally. You have to learn to adjust. So kids who, you know, for whom it really was difficult to learn a certain way and who've had to kind of work around that and adjust end up doing much better later on because they know how to, you know, just how to make it happen and how to make it work. Kids who've always had their desirable learning style. They've never learned to be flexible. They've never learned to develop the other learning styles. So then what happens when you get to your job and suddenly, you know, you're in a meeting and you say, you raise your hand and say, excuse me, you know, this presentation really isn't working for me. This isn't how I process information. Can
1: I make a cereal box based on it? What's the cereal (laughs) box version? I do think people listening to this will say, wait a minute, when I read something, I retain it. Or wait a minute. When I hear something, I retain it much better than reading. That's a belief people have. Have they tested that belief?
0: They've tested the belief that the more ways you can encode something, the better you will remember it. So if I read a book and then I talk about it with you and then I, I don't know, make... I can't even see this is how much make, I hate projects. Yeah, make a projects. cereal yeah, box, a about, cereal box yeah. about the book. I will probably retain that information much better because I've encoded it in multiple ways. But again, it all it, it also depends on the information. Most of the time, you know, something can work well when you switch modes, but in a very in a very specific way. Like making a cereal box I don't actually think is going to help for basically anything. Mm-hmm. That's just Let's make something pretty. But if you have to learn a bio chapter, and first you read through it, and then you have to explain it to someone else, which is a different type of learning style, because first you're reading by yourself, now you're in a group. So now you're actually teaching something, talking to someone else. So you've switched. It's not just visual auditory. You're going to do much better on the test. And there has been work on that. And studies show that that makes you retain the information much better.
1: All right. Here we go. Learning styles. Are they bullshit?
0: Yes and no. Mm -hmm. They're bullshit in the classic way they're understood that some people simply learn everything better than others. They're not bullshit in the sense that people do have personal preferences and some information rather than people is better suited to certain modes of presentation than others.
1: Maria Konnikova, she's not an oatmeal. She's not a porridge. She's a good solid cereal with clusters of intelligence that stays crispy in milk thank you maria
0: thank you mike
1: If you collaborate with coworkers or clients or vendors, here's what you don't want to say. You people are not in my league. Because they might take it wrong. But of course what you mean is you're literally not in the same league or the same city or even in the same country. So what you need to do is get them all together in a room and talk things out. How do you do it? I mean, you could fly there, but that costs a lot of money. You could use a phone or an email. All right, phone, that's like this 19th century technology from what I understand. Email, bing, oh, that's not what I meant. Bing, emoji, here's what you do. GoToMeeting. Citrix GoToMeeting. It's the best way to meet from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. GoToMeeting allows you to hold as many meetings as you need with anyone, anywhere in one virtual space. You can split the screen and share the screen, and you're all on the webcams talking to each other at the same time. It's a lot more efficient than just a trail of emails. If you want to try GoToMeeting today and see what it can do for your business, you can try it free for 30 days. Here's what you do. You visit GoToMeeting.com and click the Try it free button. That's go to meeting.com for your free 30 day trial. And now the spiel. Listen to the spiel. I like the ABC show this week. George Stephanopoulos, sometimes Martha Raditz, good panel at the end. It does have an annoying name. You know, how you can't just say, oh, I listened to this week, right? You need that, like, whole sentence around it. It's like, the journal nature. I was reading an interesting story in nature. Wait, you were in a tree reading a story? No, the journal nature. This week has the same problem. You can't just say, oh, I was watching this week. What were you watching this week? This week? When? This week, actually, last week. So you have to say, I was watching ABC's This Week or ABC's Sunday show This Week. It just rubs me the wrong way. What else rubs me the wrong way is this dude. It's a worldwide terror crackdown. This morning, we're answering the urgent questions. Can Europe prevent another attack? And are there sleeper cells here at home? Doesn't it sound like he's reveling in misery a little bit too much? It's off-putting. A country on edge after a week of terror. Security in major cities around the world stepped up. The U.S. on alert. One of the highest threat levels since 9-11. Are other sleeper cells waiting to strike? He's somewhere in between announcing the latest human tragedy and announcing the latest J-Lo sploification flick. He moved in next door. He has rock-hard abs. She couldn't contain herself. Twelve people murdered in Paris. Like, it just flows way too endlessly. J-Lo's butt. Charlie Hebdo. Terror plot unearthed. On the next, The Jihadi Next Door. And listen, announcer guy, it's not that you're reveling in human misery because everyone in the news business does that. It's why it's a news business. It's that you do it so transparently, so gleefully. ISIS claims it's executed another American hostage. We have team coverage of the horrific new videotape. Tone it down, schadenfreude McGee. Okay, schadenfreude Schultz. Think less Grim Reaper and more... Sensitive Oncologist, I have some terrible news. Your tumor is malignant, plus how the Iowa caucuses are shaping up. So anyway, if that's an example of content, like I told you I like the show this week, an example of content overcoming the come on, here now is the opposite. Have you heard about this site?
0: Attending college means you have the choice. Take out loans and eat ramen. Or get a sugar daddy and live the life you've always wanted. Sugar Baby University, where beautiful, ambitious people graduate debt-free.
1: This is a sugar daddy site. What is a sugar daddy site or a sugar baby site? According to the sites, it's a place where...
0: You can gain the personal connections you need to go from entry level to corner office.
1: But according to Sense Facts and History, it's a prostitution site. Okay. Okay. Maybe it's slightly more ambiguous than a prostitution site. They have some language in there like, this is not a prostitution site. If you use it as a prostitution site, you're violating our terms of service, you prostitutes. But it's about as ambiguous as that commercial that I just played where an aspiring student removes a spiral notebook from a book bag, but the angle of the camera is shooting directly down her extremely tight tank top. But now, insidiously, these sites have hired PR agencies to try to legitimize them in the mainstream media. Bad news. It's working. Terence Ross, writing in The Atlantic, takes SeekingArrangements.com, takes their press release, basically, and turns it into a full-blown story called Where the Sugar Babies Are... It's getting sweeter in the South, and at one university in particular. The article is about a supposed trend of female undergraduates at the University of Texas and other schools who are using the sites to meet men and have the men pay for their company and maybe their debts and maybe their college education. The article uses the phrase according to five times, and guess who it's always according to? It's always according to the site SeekingArrangement.com or the spokeswoman for SeekingArrangement.com. The article reflects the website's clear ambition to define itself as something other than pimps or middlemen or benefiting from the probable sexual assault and definite sexual debasement of some women, even if some women do enjoy the site and could figure out no other way to get men to pay for their company. The last sentence in the Atlantic piece is this. But as morally suspect as seeking a baby arrangement may seem, for many college students this outside help is increasingly the only way out of a lifetime shackled to debt. Yeah, prostitution is increasingly the only way to avoid a lifetime of debt. So, if you wanted to write this article and have the phrase according to, not next to, this pimp website, you might say according to experts or according to financial planners or according to the government itself, there's a new program that caps the amount of monthly payments of your student loans at 10% of income. You might want to note that there's now debt forgiveness after 20 years of non payment. You could do a lot of things. Or you could say, hey, hook up with a horny and possibly dangerous stranger. The PR companies behind the sites want. To destigmatize and normalize what constitutes a very dangerous practice. And although I'm happy to speak for the patriarchy, they've given me their proxy, in this case, I'm doing this from a feminist perspective. If sugar baby arrangements are seen as normal or inevitable, or hey, what's a self actualized, career oriented woman with a snug tank top to do? That, of course, is a step backwards. Today I got an email from the PR people behind OnMutualTerms.com. They were playing off a Super Bowl peg, and they were touting a fan generosity survey. Here it is. Although the city of New York didn't make it to the big game, it is the place where the most generous fans live. On MutualTerms.com, the sugar daddy site that is redefining sugar, they polled over 3,000 users to find out where the most generous sugar daddy NFL fans resided. It was San Francisco. New England and New York, very, just so helpful, that data, right? The most expensive cities are filled with the horniest, richest old goats. So, I responded to this email by sending the PR person the following response. By generous, do you mean rich, horny, old goats? I feel the pride from here. To which the PR person responded, Thank you for making my morning with that email. That was truly funny. The hope is that not all the men in our site are old nor horny, smiley face, Notice she neither confirmed nor denied the goat part. And that's it for today's show. The state of GIST producer Andrea Salenzi is overworked. The state of GIST intern Claire Tennesketter is frantically booking an actual goat to check the horniness thereof. The state of Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts is marking his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. The State of Andy Bauer is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is Equanimous. You can go to iTunes and subscribe. Go to slate.com slash gist email. Sign up for email. You can go to yo. Download yo. Sign up for podcast. We'll tell you when the show's ready to go. We're on facebook.com slash slategist. You can debate if Equanimous is the right word. Stand by Equanimous. The State of the Gist is characterized by an almost preternatural perspicacity leavened by rampant mispronunciation and a penchant for gratuitous ursine references. Thanks for listening.
0: This is Josh Levine, host of Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen. On this week's episode, we interview the producer of football on NBC, Fred Goodelli, and ask him what goes into putting together the Super Bowl telecast. You can subscribe to Hang Up and Listen at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts.